Turn with me to Exodus chapter 11. If you need a Bible, there's some Bibles in the back, or even if maybe you raise your hand, someone would graciously serve you in bringing you a Bible. Exodus chapter 11. I became a Christian in my early 20s, and uh, when that happened, I, like many people, I think, became obsessed with finding out what God's will was for my life. Not just in a, in a sort of general abstract way, but like down to like the particulars, like really specific. And, and you know, when you want to figure out like what is God's will for my life, often what, what we do is, or at least what I did, is I began to pray for signs, right? You ever done that? Right? I don't, I don't recommend this, but you just pray for that sign that it would be clear what God and his will is for our lives. Well, one particular morning, I'm a little ashamed to tell you this, but I was having a quiet time when I was 20. I had just become a Christian and I had suffered long enough, eight months single, and so I prayed for a girlfriend, okay? And so I prayed, and I had, and it's, it's, it's Easter, so I can tell you this sort of spooky story. I prayed, and I, this has never happened since, but I prayed, and when I prayed that prayer, I got this like weird image in my mind of a hand with a red mark on it. True, true story, okay? And I thought, that's, that's bizarre. That's, that's weird. And so I thought... This is exactly what I needed, a sign. And so I ran to, to, to college. I sat in my first lecture, and I began to look at every girl's hands like a stalker, all right? And I obviously started with the cutest girls and worked my way down. But by noon, no hand with a red mark on it. And so I thought, I'm just nuts. You know, I, I must have had some weird yogurt in the morning. And so that evening, I went to a friend's birthday party. We were in his apartment. It was packed, and I'm in the kitchen talking, and I feel something brush against my hand. And I look down, and there's a red mark on my hand. And I remember turning, and I looked up, and there's this girl who had a red mark on her hand, and I said, why did you do that? And she looked at me and said, I have no idea. Okay. Now, I tell you that story not just because it's spooky and weird and odd and it's nothing like that has ever happened to me subsequently. But I tell you that because I got the sign that I prayed for. But there's a problem, if you notice in my story. Having received the sign, I now had to interpret the sign. Okay? And there's two ways to interpret it. Option one, obviously God was calling me to date this girl. Option two, because the red mark was on my hand, God obviously wanted me to date myself and I was supposed to stay single, okay? <laughs> it's one thing to get a sign. Moses got a sign in the burning bush in chapter 3 of Exodus. Oh, but it's much harder to definitively know what that sign is all about, to sort of interpret a sign. Now, the end of that story, we'll, we'll save for another time. Needless to say, it was not my wife, Lisa, okay? 
But we love signs, right? It's really hard to interpret signs sometimes. Well, thankfully, this morning we have a sign. The book of Exodus in some ways is all about these signs and wonders that God performs. But the amazing thing that we find out in chapter 11 is that God tells us what this and all of these signs are all about. He interprets them for us. We've been studying in the book of Exodus, and we have gone through the first nine plagues of ten plagues. They're they're called signs, they're called wonders, they're called miracles, they're also called plagues. And now we're going to find out, though they've been hinted at, we're going to find out what, what they're all about. What the purpose of these plagues are for. Our text this morning is divided up into three sort of sections. Right? In, in verse 1, you, you'll see it. It's, it's actually broken down in conversations. In verse 1 of chapter 11, we have the Lord talking to Moses. Then in, chapter, or then in verse 4, we have Moses, or we have the Lord speaking. Then, uh, or sorry, then we have Moses speaking. And then in verse 9, we have once again the Lord speaking. And so if I could sort of sum up the big idea, which will be behind me, the big idea would simply be this. And we're going to divide it into three sections. God's promise comes through a great reversal for his own glory. So first, let's look at this this promise. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague... Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of of the people. We'll stop there. So if you remember from last week, we ended in chapter 10, and we have this face-off between Pharaoh and Moses. And Pharaoh basically says, I mean, he's so ticked off. I mean, Egypt is ruined by all of these plagues that come upon the land, and yet Pharaoh's heart is so hard that Pharaoh turns to Moses and says, if I see your face ever again, I'm going to kill you. Right? It's, it's, like, it's like the Godfather, right? Like that Moses is standing before the Godfather, and the Godfather says, if I ever see your face, I'll kill you. And so in, in sort of this context, we have this sort of fearful uncertainty. And then we read verse 1 of chapter 11. And we're reminded that God will fulfill his promise. That promise that we read of earlier in the book of Exodus, that promise to deliver his people, that goes all the way back to Genesis. God's going to do it. He hasn't forgotten his promises. I mean, it looks like God's forgotten his promises. I mean, just put yourself in Moses' shoes for a moment. Nine plagues have fallen on Egypt, and Pharaoh hasn't really done a thing. And so Moses is thinking, I mean, what else can we do? And yet here we have an assurance that yet one more plague, one more sign, one more wonder, one more miracle, and it's done. They'll be set free. The hardness of Pharaoh's heart 
Well, it doesn't matter. In God's hands, it really doesn't matter. God's going to accomplish what he's setting out to accomplish. And what we've learned time and time again, he is set out to accomplish to bring God's people out from under the slavery of the Egyptians into the promised land that they might worship him and bring him glory and serve him. But it's interesting that in verse 2 we learn that not only are they going to be freed, they're going to be freed and gain something. Look at verse 2. We learned that, uh, that uh, God's people, the Israelites, they're favored, but, but, but they're favored in a particular way. They're not leaving empty-handed, are they? They're going to leave with lots of money, right? They're going to leave with jewels and gold and silver. Up to this point, Egypt has been ruined, but not the bank of Egypt, Right? Fort Knox, right? The, the family heirlooms, those are still in play. And so God tells them, I, you need to talk to your neighbors. You, you, I'm giving you favor and say, let me borrow your jewelry for a little bit. So not only are these plagues falling upon Egypt, now God's people are going to rob Egypt. But, but not r- rob in like an uh, unjust way. It, rob Egypt like Robin Hood robs, right? Robin Hood's the good guy. He robs only from those who got rich in an unjust way. Well, just think about it. God's people have been slaves for decades. And so now God says, I'm going to pay back what you deserve with interest. That's a sort of taste of God's justice that we see here. I mean, we've, we've seen this all throughout the book of Exodus. It's not like God is just arbitrarily just doing these sorts of things. His justice is actually very, very precise. And it sort of gives us a taste of God's ultimate justice. Like chapter 11 and the justice we see, that, that finally God's people get paid with interest. That really is a foretaste of God's ultimate justice that he will bring one day. Injustice never goes unchecked. And so what we see here in these first three verses is that God's promises, his promise to deliver his people, I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's better than they thought. I mean, originally they just thought they were going to be freed from their sin, and now they're like, we're going to be freed, or sorry, freed from the Egyptians, and now they're like, I'm going to be freed from Egyptian slavery, and we're leaving with crown jewels of Egypt. I mean, it's amazing. But we also notice Notice the, the, the sort of words used in verse 1 for this promise that God will fulfill. It says that he's going to deliver them completely. Um, my son, uh, he, uh, he was taking a math test and he just forgot one. He like skipped one accidentally um, on the test. That's not how God works. God doesn't skip anything accidentally. When God frees his people, he says, I'm going to do it completely. Not, not, not a little bit freed. Not, not like halfway free. Not like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get you there, but then you got to get yourself the rest of the way. No, this freedom would be complete. And this is why the Exodus story from here on is really the paradigm for salvation for God's people in all of the scriptures. It's a paradigm of salvation. 
God's people are freed by his power and he delivers them into freedom completely. I mean, this is the essence and core of Christianity, right? Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, those who turn to Jesus in faith, they're set free. Not from the tyranny of the Egyptians. Oh, it's way better than that. It's from the tyranny of sin. And in our justification, it means that the penalty of sin, we're freed from it. And then also in our sanctification, in our life as Christians, it means that we're freed from the power of sin. It's that whole Pauline kind of description in Colossians 1 when he says, uh, in Christ Jesus, you are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You're no longer in the kingdom of darkness. Now, through Christ Jesus, you are freed and now live in the kingdom of his beloved son. Which doesn't mean that we never sin. Of course we do. But it does mean sin's power is broken in our lives. So, just by way of application, if you struggle with assurance, that assurance like, how can I know for certain if I am a Christian, if I am unified with Christ, if I have been delivered from the tyranny of sin, if you're wondering or curious or struggle with that, well, I think the answer is here in our text. We don't go looking at external things, it's not like we should just spiritually navel gaze or, or just religiously nitpick ourselves and, and look at all these behaviors like, oh, that's where we find assurance. Actually, no, that's not, biblically speaking, where we find our assurance most fundamentally. It's as we look to Christ and his work. As we look to his work on our behalf, that's where we find assurance. As we daily and weekly and monthly and hour by hour say, yes, I believe that story. I trust in Jesus. I'm throwing my lot in with him. As we do that, that's where we can find assurance. As Paul would write, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. There's our word. Until the day of Christ Jesus. And God's not going to give up on us. If you started that good work of salvation, he will finish it in your life. You can be assured of that. As God's people could take this promise to the bank, we can take that promise to the bank as well. So first, God's promise comes. Now, I want to look at a great reversal that we see starting in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. So Moses said, thus says the Lord. About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of a slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such that there has never been, nor ever will be again. Not, but, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel." either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall go, out to, shall go down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you, and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot 
anger. So last week we talked about how the plagues, the first nine, they, they float in cycles of three, like a drumbeat. And if you remember, most of the, uh, the judgments, these, these plagues came with warnings. Like the seventh. When hail came, they were like, tell everyone to take cover, right? Egyptian, Israelite, take refuge, hail's coming. But now there's a, a last sign, a last judgment, and there's no place to hide. There's no warning. Verse 4, look at this last sign that would be enacted in Egypt. And look at who is doing it. This time it's not Moses. It's not Aaron. This last sign and wonder God would take care of himself. Verse 4 says that God would, around midnight, walk in their midst. Now that's eerie sort of language, right? It's a reminder sort of of Adam walking with God in that, that, that beautiful Edenic language. Only this isn't good news. This isn't Edenic language. This is like Grim Reaper language. This final sign would be that every Egyptian firstborn would die at midnight. Verse 5, from Pharaoh's son all the way to the lowliest, right? A servant girl, you know, at her mill. So so it's a mirrorism, right? It's it's from the greatest to the least. The, The greatest being Pharaoh and the least to being a slave girl and everyone in between. No one can hide from the weakest to the strongest the richest to the poorest, and everything in between, nowhere to hide. I mean, even the cattle, even the cattle have nowhere to hide. And here we see no offer of redemption yet, just judgment. Now, it's, it's hard to wrap our minds around this last sign. I mean, it, it's horrific, there probably is no greater horror or pain than losing a child. And in some ways, I think we're meant to be horrified. Because then we're going to get there next week. But this is the price of redemption. I mean, this all points to what we need in redemption, which is the death of a son. And yet in the midst of this last plague, as as horrific as it is, the author is clear that the fortunes of God's people are turning. And I just want to point out three. They're like ironic turns of divine poetic justice. In in chapters 1 and 2, remember, uh, Israel is just multiplying. And they're growing really fast. And Pharaoh and Egypt is like, they're growing too fast. We don't know what to do. Let's kill their children. And they enact that judgment. And so now what happens here? Now it's not Israelite children dying. Now it's Egyptian children dying. And then you can remember in chapter 1 and 2, as in light of this, right, uh, Israel's cries, they, they, they mourn, they lament, and their cries are, are just heard in the lands. And they, they're heard all the way up in heaven by God. But now do you see the turn? Same language. 
it's no longer Israel that's crying and weeping and lamenting. Now it's Egyptians that are crying, weeping, and lamenting. And then the third sort of turn is in verse 8, right? But before um, Israel went and they fell down amongst Pharaoh and, and the leaders in the land, and now they are falling down at God's people. It's a reversal. This, when this, this just, this, this judgment falls on them, there's a turn, there's a twist. Egypt is going to learn something, aren't they? And this is a hard lesson that Egypt is going to learn. We see that in verse 7. When this judgment falls and is enacted by God, Egypt's going to learn, verse 7, that God makes distinction between God's people and not God's people. Do you see that there in verse 7? Now, I want to pause here and, and, and just think through for a moment. I mean, what is this distinction based on? And to answer that question, I, I want to uh, kind of think through what this distinction is not based on, based on the text. And we know that it's not based on class, riches, right? The rich and poor are both judged. So what, what wealth can do many, many things. One of my uh, friends uh, during COVID, he, he didn't want uh, kind of COVID to ruin his kid's uh, education. And so he and five other families hired a full-time teacher, paid her a full-time salary, and then made their basement into a full-time school. And they had school for their five kids and they didn't miss a beat. I mean, wealth can in some ways, may, could have made COVID not very um, uncomfortable. But wealth can't help you here, can it? Doesn't matter how much money Wealth couldn't buy you out of this judgment. I mean, it really is clear that this distinction, what made God's people distinct from not God's people, it has actually nothing to do with God's people. It has nothing to do with their goodness. It has nothing to do with Israel's goodness or their avoidance of badness. Actually, the distinction was in God and God alone. It's not, the the lesson we learn isn't that Israel is good and Egypt was bad. Actually, you keep reading the story, you get to the prophets, and and sometimes you go, Egypt looks better than Israel. No, the, the, the lesson isn't, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. The lesson is that God makes a distinction because God chooses to make a distinction. In three books after Exodus, in the book of Deuteronomy, we read this. The Lord your God has chosen you, here's here's our similar language, to be a treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love and affection on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. In other words, it had nothing to do with you. If you think it's because you were picked because you were the best athlete or or the, the smartest or you had the best military or you had anything like that or the worst. No, no, no. It had nothing to do with anything in and of Israel itself. So then why? Why did God choose those people? Why does God choose any people? Verse 8. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers. 
that the Lord has brought you out from a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, God chose you because he chose you. God chose you because he loved you. God loved you because he loved you. It's a circular in reasoning. And yet, though we can't wrap our mind around all of it, the point is the distinction is God's and God's alone. And as such, it's an act of divine grace and mercy and love. If you were here last week, we, we sang a, a really old hymn. Not exactly sure what you thought of it. I love this hymn. But this hymn called How Sweet and Awful Is This Place, it has this repeated theme. I don't know if you noticed it. And it's, it's framed in rhetorical questions. And it kind of frames these rhetorical questions in, I think, a haunting way. Last week we sang, Lord, why was I made a guest at your table? We sang, why was I made to hear your voice? We sang, why was I able to enter your presence and your room? Why am I able to feast with you? Why am I a sinner? Why am I not just a sinner perishing in my sin? Why did you choose thee? Those are the haunting questions that come to God's people. It came to God's people here. And we know that it has nothing to do with our goodness or our avoidance of badness. God makes a distinction not because of our ethnicity or because of our politics or because of our preferences or because of the things that we haven't done or the things that we've decided to do. It has nothing to do with any of those. It has to do with God's choice. God is in no way contingent. God's choice is, no, is not contingent upon our perfect performance. His act and the distinction he makes in that act is merely an act of his sovereign good grace. Which means that we have no way to boast. Christians among all people are those who cannot religiously stand on our high horse and condemn anyone. We are those who are, need to be humble in light of this. Right? If, if God chose me because I was funny, which that wouldn't be true, but let's just say, then, then I could say, okay, yeah, I'll be humble to a point, but not to all points because he chose me because of this little skill that I have. But if God chose me because of nothing in me, I have no reason to boast. And that's what we see here. Egypt isn't damned because of their badness and Israel saved because of their goodness. God acts and makes this distinction as a display of his grace. Which is why I think we do church the way we do, right? There are lots of ways we can do church. But, but one way I don't think we ever should do church is to just surround ourselves with preferences and to say, oh yeah, we are the church that prefers this. We are the church that has this view on schooling. We're either pro this or pro that. We have this view on X, Y, and Z, and we can just name all of the things that, that in our world divides us. And yet I don't think that's how we build the church. We, we build the church not and saying, oh yeah, we are distinct because we have this common belief about these things that are outside of the Bible. No, we have our common unity because we have been made 
that we have been set apart, made distinct because God has given us grace. Nothing more, nothing less. I think it is wonderful that we are filled with people who have different opinions on lots of different things. If we all had the same opinion on everything, I think that's a cult. We should have different preferences, different views on various things, because that reminds us And it displays, I think, something wonderful about God's character, which is the things that bind us together are much powerful than the things that could disunite us. So lastly, let's let's look at this, the last two verses. We've looked at the promise. We've looked at this great reversal. It really is the gospel reversal, right? But then lastly, let's look at the purpose of all of these signs. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all of these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. As I said, Israel was not chosen because they were great. Egypt was not chosen because they were so bad. And yet we find out in verse 9 why all of this took place. We, we find out the, the purpose, that God's wonders may be multiplied. So God's reason for these plagues, God's reasons for these signs, these wonders, God's reasons for all things that he does is that he might multiply his wonders, which is shorthand for, or another way of saying, that he might display his name or that he might be glorified. I think this is one of the hard things to come to grips with as Christians living in the 21st century. I mean, we we, we live our lives thinking in some ways that the world revolves around us, right? Right? We we enter a party and when we left the party, the party ends, right? Like, we would never think that and yet in some ways, we're the hero. Maybe not the hero, but we're definitely the protagonist, right? Right? We are the main character in the story. We even, have, we even sing sometimes Christian songs about this. We, we, we think that at the end of the day, we are the end of God's love. We see there's a contemporary worship song that basically says that, that when Christ died, what did he think above all? Who did he think above all? He thought of me. I mean, it's so sweet. It's so beautiful. And then it's not actually right. It's not accurate theologically. We are rescued, which is the the title of our sermon series. We are rescued for glory. We are rescued to glorify God and as a display of his own divine glory. So who did God above all, when, when, when Christ Jesus was dying, who did he think above all? He didn't think of me above all although he was thinking about us in his death and resurrection. But above all, the ultimate was the son glorifying the father. Which sounds a bit strange, right? It sounds strange that the end of God is God, right? That sounds narcissistic. That God's end is his own glory. But, but, but this is a really good thing. 
Actually, it's, it, it's a very necessary thing. Because if the purpose was me, then in some way God would be contingent on me. God would be dependent upon me. And therefore, God would cease to be God. So, so we can't de-God God. He isn't contingent on any of us. He is, if he is the creator God, if he is the infinite Lord, the sovereign Lord, then he is at the center of the universe. He is the center of whatever he does. Or to use the language of the text, God does whatever he does in order to multiply his wonders, to make his name great. Which means that in the good and the bad, when God brings prosperity or when God brings poverty, when the promotion comes or the pink slip, all of those things are means and ministries and a context for God's wonders to be multiplied in your lives. That they are means of displays of God's glory. Even when there's trials, even when there's hardship, even when there's suffering, those two can be mechanisms and a means for you to glorify God. When we're suffering, when we're uncomfortable, when things don't go our way, it's not as if God's goodness is in time out. No, it's just another, another season, I think a greater season, for us to magnify his wonders in our lives. Because that's how wonders work. That's how signs work. Signs work not just when things go right. Actually, signs are on its greatest display when things go wrong. And the no, reason I know this is because I'll give you one more sign, one more ultimate sign and has nothing in one sense to do with me. The ultimate sign actually came and we know about it in the gospel of John. If you've read the gospel of John, the fourth kind of the fourth book in the new Testament, it's called, some people call it the book of signs. And in the gospel of John, there are seven signs and they're all pointing to The same reality that Jesus Christ is God's means of delivering his people through judgment, which we see here, right? Salvation came through judgment. And in all of those signs and all those wonderful things, think of uh, Jesus turning uh, water into wine, bringing manna from heaven. In all of those signs, in all of those ways, God was confirming that Jesus was the promised Messiah to bring salvation, to bring deliverance, to bring freedom from the enslavement of sin. All of those signs and wonders. Well, when we look at chapter 11 of Exodus, our minds should go straight to the better and greater sign, which is Jesus Christ who delivered us not just from the tyranny of Egyptians, but the tyranny of our own sin. When he died in our place for our sin, and the purpose of that act was so that God's wonders may be multiplied. I mean, there is no greater degree of God's glory being on display, showing his character, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his grace, than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's promise comes 
through that great reversal where the judgment that we should deserve because of our sin comes not on us, but comes on God's son. That is the most ironic twist of any story that has ever taken place. God's promise comes through that great gospel reversal and it does for God's own glory. That's what chapter 11 is is all about. At 20, as I said before, I wanted a sign. And I got a sign. And I interpreted that sign the way I wanted to interpret that sign. And I started dating that girl. Spoiler alert, not Lisa. She doesn't enter my story until later. But here's the amazing thing. Even in the midst of me fumbling around, trying to figure out that sign, interpret that sign, God was multiplying his wonders. I dated that girl. That girl then made me spend a summer in West Africa. In West Africa, I met another girl, Interlisa. It sounds devious. It wasn't. It was fine. Okay. There, there was no cheating going on. So then out of that, She grew up in Portland. So I went down to Portland, went to seminary, did ministry for 10 years, and then got sent up here. Without that sign, I would not be here right now, even though in many ways I was fumbling in the dark. That's God's wonders being multiplied, even when we can't figure it all out some days. So so maybe you're wondering, Or maybe you want a sign. You don't need one. I really don't think you do. You've got the ultimate sign in Jesus Christ. But maybe you're wanting to know how you can glorify God in your lives. Well, let me just, in conclusion, give you one way, one encouragement, one way in which you can glorify God, seek to to honor him. It is just like our story suggests just by enjoying grace, enjoying the sweetness of grace, enjoying the blessedness of God's love for you. That is one of the greatest ways you can show your distinctiveness is by enjoying God and the grace that he gives to us. Let's pray. God, I uh, thank you that in all things, in the good and the bad, in the hard and in the easy. Lord, we're thankful that you do all things for our good and your glory. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us by that reality. I pray, Lord, that this would be our song that we would sing from this day forth and forevermore. Amen.